our text this morning. It comes from 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. You know, I always said 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy or whatever, but then when they jumped all over Donald Trump for saying it, I decided I was going to say it just for that reason, because that's the Scottish way. That's how you do it. And whatever else is wrong with Donald Trump, he knows he's Scottish. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. Listen carefully, pay careful attention to the Word of God here. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Father, we ask this morning that you would in particular bind Satan. We pray, Father, that our hearts and minds would be kept alert, that distractions would not hinder. We pray, King Jesus, that in these next weeks as we discuss perhaps some of the most critical information that we need in order to recover the power of the church in our age and begin to address the things that are happening all around us and indeed the things that are happening among us and even in our own hearts, We pray, Father, for you to help. As the old hymn says, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And we need you, Father. We need your Spirit. Open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, last week I attempted to expand your vocabulary just a little bit, and we're going to do the same thing this week. But what I attempted to do last week was to give biblical clarity to some words that we throw around a lot in English, but which have different meanings in the Scriptures. Now, I introduced those words to you in their Greek form on purpose to help separate them in your mind from the way that we do commonly use them in English. And the two English words in particular that I that I took on and tried to redefine for you in a biblical way are the words heart and mind. Now, in American 21st century English, when we hear heart and mind, we think feelings and thoughts. Feelings and thoughts. And by thoughts, we usually mean our reasoning about the world around us. But that's not the way the New Testament uses the words And it's not the way that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the words. That was the Bible that Paul read and that he would have quoted from and and used as his scripture when he was writing the New Testament in so many places. In scripture, the heart is not the seat of the emotions. It is the center of your being. It is the wellspring from which yourself emerges. It's the fountain of your life. Scripture calls this part of you the heart in order to refer to its centrality, the central place in your being. It calls it the spirit, 
to refer to its non-material nature and also to refer to the fact that it is the part of you that is most like God because God is spirit. And it calls it the will in order to refer to the fact that this is where our unforced yes or no comes from. And it governs our lives in that way, and it's the wellspring from which we create. So in biblical anatomy, your heart isn't the seat of your emotions, that is your splankna. I've told that some people like words like that, splankna. So that's the, the splankna is where your emotions come from in the New Testament, and that's your guts. So the heart is the center of your person, your emotions come from your gut. So next Valentine's Day, I want all the Bible-believing Christians to stop sending cards with this symbol on them, and I want them to send instead cards with this symbol on them, okay? I want you to, I want you to love each other from your colon, okay? Now, I didn't introduce the word in Greek for heart last week, uh, but it's an easy one because it translates to an English word we use all the time. It's cardia with a K instead of a C. That's where we get our word cardiac from. And so to love God with all of your cardia, with all of your heart, doesn't mean to have deep feelings of affection for God. It means to come to a place where the very center of you wants what's good for God. And God tells us all through his word what is good for him what blesses his soul, what delights him. And so to love God with your whole heart is to have at the center of yourself this desire, this Godward orientation, and a desire to please him, and a desire to make him happy right there at the center of who you are. That's what it means to love God with your heart. And that's what Jesus means in the parable when he pictures God saying to a servant who has pleased him, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. So when you serve him well, you bring God joy. And that joy isn't something that God keeps to himself. That joy is something that he shares with you. And he doesn't just share it with you later on after you die, he shares it with you now. Jesus says, my joy, I leave with you. So you get to share in God's joy by loving him from your heart. Now you see, God is a joyous God. God is a being who is filled with joy, and he wants to share his joy with you. Now, very closely connected with your heart is the invisible part of you that the Bible calls the mind in your English Bibles. And I want to revisit what I said last week and clean it up and simplify it a little bit, and then we will use these terms going forward in these studies. There are two separate parts of you, invisible parts of you, that have to do with cognition, with thinking in the biblical understanding. There's the part of you that reasons naturally about the world around you, and this is the part that does math. This is the part that figures out how to write your grandchildren in an email. This is the part of you that has to do with IQ, with what college you get into or went to. It's about how you get unlost when you get lost. And, and I gave you a couple of words last week to describe this process. They were biblical words, and, uh, but they, they, didn't just, they didn't hit the target, and there's a reason for that. Um, they, I wanted them to be simple and precise, and they were not simple and precise. And I can't even remember exactly what they were. I know one of them had to do with the word gnosis or knowledge, and the other one had to do with reasoning, okay? 
But then um, I did a deep dive in the Greek this week. Actually, I've been doing a lot of deep dives in the Greek and even in the Hebrew. And this week I stumbled on a quote by one of the early church fathers named Chrysostom, and he made it so clear and so simple, and I thought, that's it, okay? Here's what Chrysostom said. The human faculty of cognition, the reasons about the world, he called the logos, the logos, L-O-G-O-S. And I thought, well, that's perfect. Because that's a word, first of all, it's a Bible word, and it's always good to be using Bible words here, but it's a word that most Christians already know because this is what the apostle John calls the pre-incarnate Christ in John chapter one. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And there's a whole bunch of philosophy and theology and history tied up into that choice of the word. Um, it, but it doesn't just mean the pre-incarnate person of Christ. It's used 333 times in your New Testament. And it's used several other ways, but all of them have to do with rational thought, rational speech, rational communication. The one that stands out to me in particular, as I looked at those different ways that this New Testament uses the word, the one that I thought made the best illustration was in 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter tells us to always be ready to give an explanation for our reasoning about everything connected to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And he says, always be ready to give a defense, which in Greek is an apologion, to everyone who asks you for a reason, a logon, for the hope that is in you. So when the world says to the Christian, why in the world do you believe and behave as you do, the Christian is supposed to be able to say, well, let me explain my logic and my reasoning to you. Let me explain to you why this is a sensible way to live. So the logos is your faculty of reason. But there is also another part of you that has cognitive abilities. And that's the noose, N-O-U-S, the noose. And the noose is the word that's commonly translated as mind in your English New Testaments. Now, the noose is the part of you that is designed to see God. It's designed to apprehend God. It's designed to know God. It's designed to voluntarily and intelligently rearrange your life around God and to interact with God. Now, in a well-formed, well-disciplined mind, the logos and the noose work together. And frankly, in a, in a diseased and disastrous mind, the logos and the noose work together, but it doesn't produce good, it produces evil. The noose is sometimes called the eyes of the heart. So when Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter one, uh, I think it's about verse 18, that his prayer is for them, the Ephesians, to have the eyes of their heart open. He's not saying, he's not looking for glasses down here in your pectoral region. He's talking about your noose, your mind. It's also sometimes called the eyes of the soul. Now the Bible spends almost no time worrying about your logos, the part of you that you can measure with an IQ test um, for understandable reasons because it varies with everybody and, and it's just, it's important but it's not that important It'll work itself out if you get other things right. The Bible is, however, extremely interested in the state of your noose, your spiritual mind. And why is that? Well, it's because the restoration of your noose 
which is blackened and darkened and impaired by the sins that you commit, but also by the sinful nature that you inherit, the transformation of that is the key to transforming the rest of you. And that's what last week's text taught us, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world. The the word literally means to be squeezed into a mold and given an imprint. Don't be conformed to the world, but metamorpho. Be transformed by the renewing of your noose. You see, once you've begun to put in place the settled habit of self-denial, that we call death to self, and you remember I said that is the, you've got you've to have that habit in process in order to make any further progress. But once you begin to make some progress in that, then the very next step is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 teaches. You start by undoing the damage to your noose, to your mind. Now, I just want to mention something as an aside here, and maybe it will illuminate some things for you, and maybe it won't, and if it doesn't, don't worry about it. But for a long time, without really thinking carefully about it, I assumed that what Paul meant by being transformed by the renewing of my mind was that if I learned enough correct doctrine and learned it thoroughly enough, it would cause me to become more Christ-like somehow. And so that's what I did. I was a doctrine maniac, I still am. I know our doctrine, I know everybody else's doctrine, I can compare ours to theirs and point out their errors and I can compare theirs to ours and go, okay, they might have a point, we might be mistaken here. Um, And and so I, I learned it all. And what I discovered was That didn't solve my problem. You see, there are really two problems with with this approach. First of all, any of the churches around us that aren't just puddles of theological goo, um, they all have differences in judgment uh, about just what constitutes correct doctrine. And yet there's some good Christians, some fine Christians in those churches. Now, of course, we all know that the The Bible says in 2 Presbyterians chapter 4 that the system of doctrine that's laid out in the Westminster Confession is actually the correct doctrine, and it was given from on high by an angel masquerading as John Calvin. We know this. But I notice that very fine Christians in non-Presbyterian churches don't seem nearly as handicapped by a lack of Westminster as I would have thought. And the Presbyterians who have free access to Westminster aren't nearly as transformed as we would like, and that includes me. So I concluded that there was something wrong with my mental model. Now, there is always at least one nitwit out there who will then stand up at this point in the discussion and suggest that the answer must be either bad doctrine or just not worrying about doctrine and focusing on something else. And I want to stop you before you out yourself and I have to publicly embarrass you. So don't do that. You see, knowledge of good doctrine is an activity of the logos, the reason, and it's a fine use of the logos. It's a God-honoring use of the logos when we reason well about him and about what he's told us and about his word. But by itself, the logos, the reason, cannot heal or transform the noose or the mind, even if it is in possession of the most accurate information available. Because the problem is not intellectual, it's moral and spiritual. 
And so many Christian ministries that are focused on things like apologetics are focused on the logos, on the rational argument. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, as long as there's work being done on the news as well. But when all you do is focus on correct doctrine, you just get sinners who know lots of doctrine. And it doesn't help. As a matter of fact, often it produces a lot of pride. And, and this is also a realm where sometimes the smartest people, the ones who have the best logos, are the most messed up. Because the blinded noose says, I don't want there to be a God, because if there is a God, then I can't be my own God and do whatever I'd like and not feel guilty about it. And then the blinded noose sends the intellect or the logos out to discover every possible reason why there can't be a God. And then the person says, see, only unintelligent people and backwards rubes and unsophisticates like you people believe in God, but we intelligent, enlightened people like me notice all the problems with the idea and we reject it based on sound reason. Well, let me tell you, there are no intellectual problems with the existence of God and with the Christian faith. There are only darkened minds thinking vain thoughts and hearts that are animated by perverse desires. Well, so how does one go about being transformed? Well, there's an excellent hint in the grammar in Romans 12:2. The verb be transformed is an interesting grammatical creation. It's an imperative, meaning God is giving us an order, but it's a passive imperative, and it suggests that God wants us to take an active role in letting something happen to us. So in other words, I think it's, it's echoing what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work or act for his good pleasure. So in other words, you're going to do two things. You're going to take an active role in procuring some outcomes in your life. Because the grace of God and the power of God is working behind the scenes to do two things inside of you. Number one, he's enabled you to begin to be willing to do the good and to think the good. He's changing you so that you start wanting what he wants instead of what you want. And then out of that, he's enabling you to take wise and effective action. You know, the, the, first, the first step in any spiritual uh, progress, um, just in general, is this idea of admitting what you actually want. And then going, all right, what does God want? Now, is there a gap there? Now, if, if, if there's such a gap there that you cannot want what God wants, you're stuck. And you just have to ask God to change what you want. And he will, eventually, if you ask him and are sincere about it. He will change what you want. But if you find even a little bit of you wants what he wants, but there's also a quite a bit of you that doesn't want what he wants, well, you're, that's, that's when you're in the position to take intelligent action. And God will strengthen that part of you that wants what he wants, and he will weaken that part of you that doesn't want what he wants. So just admitting where you're at, you know, you're struggling with some sin. Do you really want to be free of that sin? Or do you kind of enjoy it and you're just happy that he's forgiving you? Yeah. 
Because if you just are enjoying it and you're happy that he's going to forgive you, you're stuck. You're not going to be able to fight with that sin because you don't want to. But if, if he raises in you a sense of holy discontent or disgust at what you're doing, that's a good place to be. That's the road to progress. You say, Lord, strengthen that part of me that hates this as much as you hate it and decrease that part of me that loves it and wants to keep on doing it. And he will. He will. So your mind, your noose, is the largest and the most important battlefield that there is. It's, I cannot overstate how important this is. Your mind is where so many battles are won or lost that are critical to everything that happens out in the world. And so mastering your mind and bringing your mind under control and conquering it with the help of God is one of your first and most central tasks. Okay? And you have three enemies. You have the world, by which we mean the system of ideas and values that Satan uses to control a lost humanity. And we have the flesh, or the fallen part of you that is still trying to have its own way and resist God. And then we have the devil. Now stop and think with me for a moment. What are the three, or so what are the main weapons that are deployed in this warfare against you from the world, the flesh, and the devil? What does 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6 say? The main weapons that are deployed against you, loved ones, are ideas. They're ideas. Not simply ideas like, oh, I'm out of milk, I think I need to go to Giant Eagle. Uh, special kinds of ideas. Uh, ideas which the Bible calls in this particular passage arguments or lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. Now it's time for a new Greek word. And that word is logismos, and its plural is logismoi. It's in this text of Scripture right here twice. And right here, Paul describes the central battle in the Christian life in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. And the battlefield is your noose, your mind, and your cardia, your heart. And those two things are, you remember, I said they're very closely integrated together. They always work together in you. They're separate things, but they're really, really cooperative. It's so much so that the scripture will often take the the characteristics of the one and assign them to the other. So you would say, uh, you you would find the the phrase, the thoughts of their hearts in the scripture rather than the thoughts of their noose or their minds. They're, they're, They're almost interchangeable sometimes in scripture, in terminology. And definitely when you start getting Uh, further on from scripture in the early church you find that they're used increasingly interchangeably but but this new greek word logismos or logismoi which is found right here in the in the text of scripture is is the primary weapon that's arrayed against you and the weapons is deployed also by god it's one of god's weapons too and and so it's deployed by god it's deployed by satan and, and his allies, and those weapons are what we call, what the Bible calls logismois. Logismoi. Logismos is the singular. So what is a logismos? Well, it's another one of those Greek words that got charged with extra meaning because ancient Greek-speaking Jews wanted an Old Testament in the Greek language. 
Originally in the secular Greek, it was a term that referred to figuring up a bill of sale or calculating or computing operations. It had mostly to do with math. And, and so you would say, well, how much lumber do I need to build this house? And you would sit down and you would logismos about it. You would calculate. A little later on in secular Greek, it came to be used of any sort of process of reasoning or planning, such as planning a strategy of defense or political maneuvering. And from there, it very naturally began to take on the idea of an argument designed to overcome objections and opposition so that something important could be done. And then 250 years before Christ was born, the Septuagint, that Greek Old Testament that I mentioned, was translated from Hebrew, and that word took on a new emphasis for the people of God. Before in Greek, it really had a kind of a neutral sense to it. But in the Greek Old Testament, it took on a sinister cast. And it began to refer to the evil plots that wicked people and wicked spirits plot against God's rule and against God's people. It was used to translate the Hebrew word Mahashabah. So for instance, in Psalm 2, we see the nations raging and the peoples plotting together in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. There's this, this, we're coming together to make a plan to try and destroy this God's rule and his people. And the nations are maniacs, they're raging, they're out of their minds, but they're smart about it. In Proverbs 6.18, we find that one of the seven things that the Lord hates and finds abominable is a heart that devises logismus kekus, wicked plans. In Genesis 6-5, God is grieved because of the wickedness of man and how it was great on the earth, and it says every intention of the thoughts of his heart, the logismos, was only evil continually. In 2 Chronicles 26-15, I thought this was interesting, it's even used to describe a, a series of complex war machines that were commissioned by King Uzziah that were located on the walls and towers of Jerusalem, which either shot giant quantities of arrows all at once or flung large stones at an attacking army. That, that, that complicated machine was a logismos, it was a plan, it was a device, it was something that we worked hard to put together and it was intricate and, inter and, and, and it was really effective. In Ezekiel 38.10, we find out something really important. These logismoi come from outside of a person and they lodge there and they become the seed of evil deeds. And so for instance, it says in Ezekiel 38.10, thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts, the word in the Greek Old Testament is literally rhema, a word or a message, will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. So these logismoi are spiritually powerful ideas that enter into the mind, enter into the heart, they motivate one to act on them. Now, very early on in the life of the church, when it was still under great persecution, it was common for Christians to flee out into the countryside or out into the desert when there was persecution. 
And so, for instance, we see in, in uh, the book of Acts, we see Paul uh, being let down through the walls of Damascus in a basket, and then he flees to the, to the deserts of Arabia for an extended period of time. And while they were there, alone, hiding, some of them discovered that a solitary life in the desert lived mostly without other people around, and with the days taken up in prayer and meditation on the scriptures and whatever work needed to be done to sustain yourself was an ideal life if you wanted to become a scientist of the soul. And one of their main areas of research, simply by necessity, is this area of the battle with these logismoi. So they're out there, they're in the desert in Egypt or in the desert in Arabia or in the, wherever, and they're freed from almost all distractions. There's nothing on TV. There's not, you know, you can't go to McDonald's and get lunch. They're, they're freed from almost all distractions and they spent a great deal of time seeking the Lord in prayer and trying to do that well. And you find very early on in the history of the church some very profound writings on exactly this subject. And these writings are largely ignored in our day, even by pastors and scholars, but this was not always so. So for instance, in the preface of John Calvin's Institutes, Calvin writes, it is a malicious lie to represent us as opposed to the early church fathers. And then he says, I mean the ancient writers of a purer age. And Calvin quoted these writers extensively. And the same is true of Luther, same is true of Wesley. All the great Protestant leaders looked to these early writers in the early church, and they did not consider them infallible. They recognized that some of the mythological stories arose about these men and women were, shouldn't be paid attention to, um, but they saw in them a deep experience of the Lord Jesus and a disciplined pursuit of God from a heart of love. And they said, these are valuable, and we need to take them seriously. And these early writers, they knew their Bible. They knew them very well. And they spent hours and hours and hours reading scripture, memorizing scripture, meditating on the scriptures. They would stop and pray at fixed times in the day and part of their prayer, they would go through the whole of the Psalms uh, within a 30 day period. They would just pray this to the point where they had the, Psal the whole book of Psalms memorized. They just knew it by heart and they meditated on those scriptures. Now, I've been doing some deep dives, as I said, into the Greek and the Hebrew lately, precisely because I wanted to make sure that what I'm introducing to you is sound and biblical, and I just wanna tell you two things. Number one, it has been a fascinating and very fruitful study. It's been a lot of work. I have, you go into my office, there's like Greek dictionaries piled up on the floor, and. It, I never do that, but I've done it this way because I need them all right where I'm working and I've been flipping back and forth through them. And, and these aren't little dictionaries where you get this much uh, definition of a word. They're dictionaries where you go for like 10 pages of what a word means and how it was used and things like that. So, so this, I've been doing a lot of work on this because I wanna make sure that I never mislead you. I wanna make sure that I do right by you. That's my job. Number two, Satan really does not like me doing this. He really doesn't. In the last four months, I've had not only a series of annoying setbacks and disasters, 
ice dams in my roof. The, you, you remember when I, I preached about Satan the last time and I, and I played that video? I walked out the door and my car wouldn't start. And Matt was the only one here. And, I, and, and so he tried to jumpstart it and it still wouldn't start. Well, the battery's dead. So it's not that old a battery. So I, I called my wife and I yanked the battery out and I took it down to, to AutoZone or wherever it was that I bought it and they tested it. No, the battery's fine. So I come back and I put it in the car, the car starts. I'm like, come on. I mean, is that the best you got? You, shouldn't, you should not taunt him. <laughs> but I kind of did. But it's been one thing after another. But, but I've also had some really, really freaky things happen. Uh, over Christmas time when my family left and I was home alone and I, I was really working on some deep spiritual work then with that solitary time, I, I, there, was, there was one night where I'm laying in bed and I've got my back to my wife's empty spot and I feel something crawl in bed with me. And I thought, oh, it's the dog. And I reach back there to pet the dog and there is no dog. And I turn around and I turn the light on. There's no dog. So then I lay back down, turn the light off and I'm laying down looking at my wife's side of the bed with my eyes wide open, and it does it again. Something crawls in bed with me. I could feel it. I could see the mattress moving. I thought, okay, Satan's prowling. A couple of nights later, I was up in the middle of the night. I was praying, and, and uh, I hear a, a dog growl behind the couch. I thought, that doesn't sound like either one of my dogs. So I got up, and I turned on the light, and I walked around to the back of the house. There's no dog. Dogs are both upstairs. The, Thursday afternoon, working on this sermon, and there's a big spray bottle that's been sitting by my desk for six months because I don't want to fill it with chemicals and go do the thing that needs to be done to fix the, and it's just been sitting there. And all of a sudden, that thing just went poop and flew halfway across the room. Nothing, nothing touched it. I didn't touch it. It just flew halfway across the room. So Satan does not like that we're digging around here. You should take that fact very seriously. I don't talk about these things. These, these are not things that happen to me all the time. I don't talk about them easily because they're sensationalistic. But I need you to know we're on to something here. And we need to be prayer and prayerful. And we need to be careful. But we're on to something here. We need to take this seriously. Incidentally, all this stuff is what those spiritual formation classes are about. It's teaching you the details of how to be transformed in your mind, how to be transformed in your heart, how to be transformed in your body, how to transform your relationships, how to worship God aright, how you change these things here. That's what we're learning. But if Satan's not happy, we must be doing something right. So when we put the scripture together with the experience of these early Christians, we learn the following. Number one, as I've already stated, these logismoi are powerful spiritual ideas that lodge in our noose, in our mind, and in our cardia, our heart. And once they lodge there, they impel us to actions that are congruent with those ideas. And that's true whether they are good from God or whether they are bad. And that leads me to point number two. These logismoi, these powerful ideas, are not all bad. Some of them are good. Number three, there are three basic sources of these logismoi. Number one, they can arise from inside of you. They can arise from inside of you. And usually they arise from inside of you because you have unrestrained passions that you have not dealt with. And those passions push on you 
and they give rise to these thoughts, these intrusive thoughts that latch on and they start working on you. And it's not long before you do the thing that the thought suggests. So it can come from inside of you. Secondly, they can come from Satan, either directly by a demon just projecting something into your mind or mediated through the world, very often mediated through the world. And number three, they can also come from God. They can come from God. Number four, these logismoi are not simply ideas. They always have an image or images associated with them that magnifies their power and it grips the mind powerfully and it gives them a kind of a staying power. And sometimes they'll even elicit certain bodily movements that are almost automatic, a gasp or a wince or a smirk, movements of the hands and feet or pelvis. Or if a good one comes, you look upwards and open the hands up with the palms upwards and smile. They just come. I, I was sitting in my office and I picked up Calvin's Institutes and, I, and I, every once in a while I'm just so grateful that we live when we live. And I have all these tremendous resources at my disposal. And I picked up those books, I've had them since seminary, and I was just immediately overcome with gratitude for just the fact that I had Calvin's Institutes and I have all these dictionaries and all these things. And I just uh, almost automatically was overcome with a feeling of gratitude and look up and said, thank you, God, that I live when I live, and I have access to the things that I have access to. That was a logismo, a logismos from God. Number five, the sheer number of demonic logismoi being showered upon us on a daily basis has increased exponentially in recent decades, and that is thanks to media and advertising and internet-enabled smartphones Many of the images that are being shown to us over and over again and to our children over and over again are specifically designed by their creators to project logismoi into the population at large. Most of these image creators know what they are doing, even if they don't understand why they are doing it or who it is that they're working for. It, this phenomenon of how these ideas grip a mind and change the behavior is very well understood in the world, in the realms of advertising, movie making and storytelling, music, psychology, very well understood and very thoroughly researched. They can cause you to want to do things that you would never even conceive of just by showing you the right images over and over again. And arise within, uh, something arises within that grips you and you end up playing by their rules. And they know that. Now, they may just be doing it to try and sell you Cheerios, but they also may be doing it to try and sell you something else. And we've seen that in our culture over and over again. Number six, because of the way these things work, there are no thoughts that do not have some sort of effect on the mind and then ultimately the behavior. And that is why scripture counsels us to be very careful and very diligent about what we let into our noose and through our noose into our cardia, our heart. Scripture over and over again says, you need to be careful about what goes into your mind. Very careful. 
For instance, Proverbs 4.23, above all else. In other words, this is the most important advice in the whole book of Proverbs. Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. That's Proverbs 4.23. And we hear that and we think, well, what, what the writer of the, of the Proverbs is saying is, protect yourself from emotional hurt by being detached. But that's not what he's saying, because the heart isn't about your feelings. He's saying, do not let these powerful enemies into the core of your being, because the core of your being is that from which your whole life flows. And to let them in is like giving the Chinese all the passwords to the Pentagon computer and saying, come on in and look around, boys, take what you like. That's what you're doing when you let these things in. It says, for instance, uh, in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, then what are we supposed to do? Logizeste, allow your mind to dwell on these things. So in other words, you fix your mind on what the good is. It says in, Philipp in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why does it say that? It's not so that you can have happy thoughts and a good attitude. It's because these are the defense mechanism against the devil's logismoi. It's the only way to fight and these logismoi can become so powerful that they seize control over our being and they totally reorient our lives, either for good or for ill. They can come to possess you and destroy you and others along with you. And Paul even talks about, I think it's in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about how God, sometimes to punish a people, sends a strong delusion upon them. It's a logismo. It's, the, it's something that will cause them to behave in ways that are just crazy and think that they're the only ones that are sane. And if you've ever been in the grip of one of these things that has just gotten its claws into you and it's reoriented your thinking and the anger and the lust and the whatever else, the, the sadness and the depression that comes out of this, and you, 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 don't, you, you can't stop thinking about it. It becomes obsessive, and it runs your life, and it will destroy you. Number seven, you are constantly, constantly assaulted by evil logismoi. One contemporary Christian writer said, you are like an island that is buffeted constantly on all sides by waves, and the waves are logismoi. And then he goes on to say, logismoi constitute a raging stream engulfing our conscious awareness and diverting us from prayer and mindfulness. They are invaders of the human mind. The logismos is thus the beginning, the center, and the root of sin, the front line of Satan's war against our salvation and his hatred of us. Number eight, we can and we must become ninjas of the noose. We have a war to fight. Paul clearly states that in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse three. 
And our warfare is not primarily in the realm of the world. It's not physical. It's not psychological, strictly speaking. It's not for the, for the, for the reason that we're battling. It's for the mind. And the battlefield is our own noose, our minds. And for the minds of other men and women all around us. And our main opponent is not other people, although they may be bearers of these evil ideas to us. Our main opponent is the devil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And the weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are not fleshly. They are pulsing with God's power and pulsing with his energy. They are far stronger than anything the world, the flesh, and the devil have in their arsenal. They tear down strongholds of these wicked logismoi. But we have to learn how to wield our weapons. We have to learn how to train. And the first place we must learn to conquer is our own selves. And it's only when you've learned how things work by your own experience that you can help others make sense of their struggles and their battles and you can offer them real help that will tend to their well-being. Now, I'm just going to leave you with this last thought. This last good logismos. And next time we're together, we'll take these things up again. This book is the armory of the saint. In this book are 10 megaton nuclear bomb grade holy logismoi that work for good in exactly the same fashion as the evil ones work for evil. And knowing this book by heart, putting it, thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Knowing this book and large portions of this book by heart will give you the weapons that you need because each one of these discrete spiritual truths that we find in passages here is a powerful spiritual thing. It is a weapon and it's introduced into your mind, and it will lodge there and change how you behave, and you can introduce it into other people's minds, and it will lodge there and change how they behave. The effect may not be instantaneous, but it works. And it works because that's how God designed it to work. Now, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna close with a true story. I've been thinking about these things a lot and wrestling with them and realizing how weak I am in these areas. And man, I just had a, I got my rear end handed to me yesterday, spiritually speaking. I, I went up to pick up some things that purchased at an auction. And, and I'm thinking, I'm picking up two basically metal cabinets and I'm gonna store some tools in there, like filing cabinets kinda. And, I, and I'm going to pick them up and I go up there thinking, well, they'll be sitting in a garage because they're garage stuff. They came out of a tool auction. And I'll just be able to throw them in the back of the minivan and go home. And I get there, and, and uh, the guy goes, well, they're in the basement. And I'm like, was it a walkout basement? No, it's not a walkout basement. Oh, I did not know that. Well, it was right here on this piece of paper. You know, and I said, is there anybody that could help me with that? Because I, I didn't come prepared for that. No, it's also right here on this piece of paper that, that you bring your own tools and your own help. Oh. So I go down there and I look at these cabinets, hoping they're going to be the light, flimsy ones. They're not. And they have to go up these narrow steps. 
and they're, they're, the homeowner is crazy, and they want me to put on these little booties, you know, to, because I don't want to get the steps dirty. Okay, so I put on the booties, and I go downstairs, and I look at the cabinets, and I try to pick one up, and it's just, I'm just like, oh my gosh. And, and of course, you got to have it out of there within like an hour and a half or two hours. And uh, it's in Warren. And so I, 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 I'm down there trying to figure out what I'm going to do, and, and some other guys come down to get a couch, and I say, I'll help you with the couch if you'll help me with these filing cabinets. Okay. So they, you know, we do the couch thing, and then we start to, I, I grab the heaviest one first, which was smart, and, uh, and we start pushing it up the stairs, and the, the former homeowner, there's two homeowners now, the person that sold it and the person that bought it, is like hovering, right? I don't know what her name was, we'll call her Karen, okay? <laughs> so she's hovering over a, don't dent the wall, don't scratch anything. And I'm like, okay, we'll do our best. And I want you to take the drawers out. I tried, they won't come out, uh, you know. And so we're pushing this thing up and we get it all the way to the top. And the stairs are carpeted. We get it all the way to the top and the landing is tile, but there's a thin strip of oak that's a transition between the tile floor and the stairs. And we're pushing it up over and, and I, I hadn't even gotten the thing up to the top and she's like, you scratched the floor. And I was like, where? Right there. And I look at it, it's, we did, we scratched the floor. Wasn't a, wasn't a deep scratch. But we, okay, so we get the thing out, and she's like, and so I walk out the door, and, and the, the guy that's been telling me that, you know, all the bad news starts looking at me, and he tells me four times, you should have brought a dolly. You should have brought a dolly. And I'm like, mister, if you tell me a fifth time I should have brought a dolly, I'm going to tear your arms off and beat you to death with them. I'm just, I'm so angry. And he's acting like I'm a stupid five-year-old child. And I hate that. And so I'm getting really hot, but I haven't said anything. And, and, and then it's like, well, you should have had some help in the dolly. I'm like, I know! Working on it. So then I go talk to Karen. Okay, what do we need to do about the floor? He's like, you got to put the floor back just like it was. Because, you know, you tore it up. And if it was in your house, I said, I know. I will make it right. Stop talking. So I go to Karen. And Karen's like, well, I'm leaving on Tuesday, and the whole board might need to come out and be replaced, and, and it might break when you take it out. And I'm like, no, it's a scratch. Well, I have a handyman that might come, but I'm leaving Tuesday, and I don't know. And, and, and so then I'm like, okay. And so I get, the, I get the heavy one in, and I, go, I say to the guy that helped me, would you help me with the light one? And he's all freaked out because Karen's like making legal threats. You know? And he's like, I'm, I'm just, I was just helping him. I'm sorry, I'm done, bye. So I'm standing here, I've got no help. Uh, and I try to pick this, the lighter one up and go up the stairs with it, and they're like, no, 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 we're not going to let you do that. Okay. Thank you. And I'm sitting there, and I finally, I, I go out and I call my wife, and I, I say, please come and bring a dolly, and we can get this thing out of here. And I sit there for an hour and a half. So then I go to Lowe's to get some stuff to fix the scratch. I asked the new homeowner, if I, can I try and fix it before you call a handyman? If it's not acceptable, you can call your handyman. He's like, sure, he's a pretty reasonable guy. So I go to Lowe's, and the whole time I'm in Lowe's, I am just enraged. What's happened to me? A logismos has entered in, and it entered in at precisely the point where I was the weakest, because I hate being looked down on and thought stupid by people who don't understand the situation. I didn't have the, if I'd have had the information, I'd have made wiser plans, but I didn't have the information. And I think to myself, 
Why in the world am I in this position? And I'm just in a rage. And, and I'm walking into Lowe's. I'm like, I'm like praying, Lord, this thing has got me. Help me, help me, help me. And it wasn't working very well. <laughs> and I finally, I get the, I find the steel wool and the marker pencil and the stain, uh, the stain pen. And, and I go back and I, between other people going up and down the stairs, I, I sand the crack, the, the scratch, and I fill it. And then I, and, and everybody's like, oh, that looks so good. Are you a woodworker? No. I am right now, but no. And, and, fine, and Laura comes, and it, and it takes 10 minutes. Not even 10, five minutes to get this thing up the stairs. And, and I'm watching, and, and, and he's like yelling at me every time I go back in. Put new booties on. You've been standing in the driveway. And I'm watching his guys go in and out without the booties. And nobody will help me, but I'm watching them help other people. And I'm like, I hate you all. And I was just such a wreck. All the way back home, a good hour in the, in the garage after I'm getting this thing out, I just was just a wreck. And, I, and after I get over it, I think to myself, how in the world am I going to be able to help somebody that's caught in the thrall of transgenderism or homosexuality or pornography? Or their marriage is a monument to despair because they can't stand each other because these little gizmoi have been building up. How am I going to help somebody if I can't even master my rage? I can't. And so the battle that I need to fight is right here. It's right here. And I can't help anybody else until I get significant success in these battles. And you can't either. Becoming a person who is possessed by love, who can say, when some derpy little dwarf says, you should have brought tools and help, and I look, a dolly. I, yes, I should have. That was very foolish of me. Thank you. Thank you for helping me be a better person. And mean it. Mean it. Not just say it through gritted teeth, but mean it. That's the battle. That's what I need to become. That's what you need to become, too. We can do this. Jesus wants us to do this, but we need to understand what the battle is and how to fight it. Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight because you are my rock and my redeemer, and we have no other hope or help 